Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, again, we bow before you and we ask that those words of that song would be true in us now as we open your word together to discern and to understand what you mean by what you say. Cause our eyes to be open, cause our hearts to take in what you would have so that we might even be like the Thessalonians when they received the word. They received it as it is, the word of God and not the word of men. And may that be our heart this morning as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're returning this morning to our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. So if you have your Bibles with you, please take them and open them to Romans chapter 8. Once again, Romans chapter 8. Eight. I trust that last Lord's Day, as we spent our time in this passage and began to really scratch the surface of what we know to be the sixth proof in a list of seven that Paul is giving us throughout this chapter so that we might be completely assured of our salvation. I trust that you were encouraged at knowing that all of the things that are going on in and through your life, all of the good things, and there are many of those, regardless of what we may think of life, and all of the bad things, and everything in between, all of it has been and is being orchestrated by God for your ultimate good. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I hope that you went out of here last night with a bit of a skip in, or last week with a bit of a skip in your step, if you will, to the reality of what that means for your life. Because that certainly is the intent of the Apostle Paul as he is writing here in Romans chapter 8, which is the intent of God the Spirit through this passage since he is the author of Scripture. So that we might never get to the place that we are so down in our life because of circumstances or that we are so up in life because of our circumstances that we no longer entertain the need for God. We get to the place where we need God no more, no longer have a need for Him in our hearts, no longer have a need for Him in our thinking. We believe that somehow God has sometimes, even when we're down, left us. But we never get to that place. In other words, we cannot get to the place in our ups in life where we start to believe that we are no longer in need of dependence upon God anymore. And we cannot get to the place in our downs that we think that God is no longer on our side. Because neither of that could be farther from the truth. Because Christians, as Christians, as we saw last week, we intuitively know certain things about the very nature and character of God because we are His children. And we intuitively know from Romans chapter 8 that we have everything that happens in our lives as Christians before we are saved and after we are saved are because of God's divine calling and God's divine action on our behalf. So that, so that as we see in verse 29 here this morning, So that we who are God's children 
we who are truly God's children would be fully conformed to the image of His Son, both inwardly and outwardly, so that Christ is glorified by being identified with us. You see what it says there? For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I trust that you think of your life like that, that you think of your life in such a way that as a Christian, God has perfectly orchestrated what He is doing in your life so that inwardly and externally you are conformed to the image of Christ so that in your relationship to Christ, Christ is glorified in being identified with you. You realize this about your life, that you are, in fact, sitting here today not because you, from your own independent wisdom, decided that following and worshiping God was the right thing for you to do. You're not here as a Christian because somehow in your intellectual abilities, as smart as you are, that you simply one day woke up and said, hey, God seems like the right path. Because from the foundation of the world... From before anything was ever created, God determined to bring you into His family by means of His Son, that He is still orchestrating all things so that His determined plan for you is fully accomplished. You ever think of your life like that? That God has fully orchestrated, determined, established, and is carrying out everything so that you would in fact be conformed to the image of Christ, so that Christ in relationship to you is glorified and thereby glorifying the Father. Do you understand that? Do we as Christians understand that God has effectually called us according to His purposes? And since God cannot change, then neither will His plan for us change. That is the most secure place for us to be. That is what Paul is emphasizing here in this text again this morning. And it is necessary for it to work that way because of who God is. It is necessary for God to have accomplished and set forth and carried out His plan that way because of who God is. And so in verse 28 and the following verses, you notice that God is the one who is doing all of the action. We know verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be firstborn among many brethren. And verse 30, and whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. And so you notice that each and every one of those realities in verse 29 and 30 are actions by God alone. And all of it hinges on the very first in the list of five, which is the foreknowledge of God, for whom He foreknew the foreknowledge of God. So if we are thinking clearly, and if we are thinking exegetically, then according to verse 28, not only then 
does the Christian love God, right? Those whom God calls us all things to work together for those who love God. Not only does the Christian love God, but the Christian loves God because he first loved us. We love God because he first called us according to his purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God. And the reality is that God was the one calling you. God loved you first before you loved God. So the reason that you love God at all is because God has loved you. And thereby, in that loving exchange and in that loving plan, God is working all things together for your good. God is the one doing the action. And, now get this, and that calling you notice in verse 29 and 30, is smack dab in the middle of the five divine, unchangeable realities that reflect the very character of God. And these are the basis for the guarantee of our salvation forever. This is why we are so secure, because these very five realities define the very nature and character of God by how He is acting on our behalf. But it all begins with foreknowledge. It all begins with foreknowledge. Paul introduces us to the idea of calling in verse 28 in reference to the reality of why we even love God at all. And he drops that again in the middle of these, but two come before calling and then two come after calling. The first one is foreknowledge. And of all the terms used in these few verses, foreknowledge is the one that is confused the most. You notice that it says here in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, for whom he foreknew. Now that is to say that the greatest purpose of God in our lives that he has orchestrated is our salvation. The greatest thing that God has ever accomplished on our behalf and for us is to save us. And that all began in eternity past with his divine foreknowledge. That makes this term, in my mind, the most important of them all. Why? Because without this one, none of the rest make any sense. In other words, if there is no foreknowledge, then there is no predetermination or predestination. And if there is no predestination, there is no calling. There's no need for a calling. And if there's no calling, there's no justification. And if there's no justification, there certainly will be no glorification. And so without foreknowledge, none of them make sense. Therefore, it is extremely important that we understand what God means by what he says here. This has been very confused over the centuries. I don't want us to be confused because you don't have to be confused. Now, as I've already said, the term is the most confused of these five. People confuse foreknowledge more than predestination. They confuse predestination uh, more or less than foreknowledge, and the rest are the same way in comparison. The actual meaning of the word is really fairly simple. The actual meaning of the word means to know beforehand. To know beforehand. You might find it interesting that it is the word in the original language where we get the word prognosis. Now, when you get a prognosis, it's a guess beforehand. When you go to the doctor and they give you the prognosis about your life, it's their best guess based upon the the history of science and all kinds of things that they have looked at. But that's not the idea here. But that's the literal understanding of the words because it's made up of two words, pro and gnosis. Pro is before, gnosis is is to know. So to know beforehand. 
And therefore, based on that basic meaning, many people in evangelicalism have come away with an understanding of foreknowledge to be something equal to or an aspect of God's intellectual uh, understanding or his omniscience in an intellectual way, what God knows by intellect. In other words, some will say that it makes perfect sense that since God knows all things, that's what omniscience is, knowing all things or knowing universally everything, because God knows all things, then it then it makes further sense that God knows all things before they happen. And we would all go, here, here, we, we understand that, certainly. And therefore, when it comes to our salvation, that because God is all-knowing, then God chose to save those that he already knew in an intellectual way, as I've just described, that he already knew those who would believe upon him. That's why he chose to save them. In other words, because God foreknew of the faith of some, as he intellectually knows all things and knows even the future of things, because of that, therefore, it was those whom he then, therefore, predestined to be his children. And so many place the foreknowing of God on the what of faith, that he knew what faith people would express, But from this text and from other places in Scripture where this term is used, it is not too difficult, I believe, to demonstrate that that cannot possibly be what this term is implying. It cannot possibly be that way in the context. And the first place that we must look is with this passage itself. We're going to go to a few other places in Scripture, but I want to first start here with this passage itself because... In the context, there is no place in the heart and mind of Paul, therefore in the heart and mind of the Holy Spirit as he is illumining Paul to write these very words, there is no place in this passage where it declares to us concerning God that he knew beforehand what certain people would do. It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't indicate that anywhere. Now we know that God does know all things. We know that God is omniscient. But this passage is speaking only of God and what He does. Not what He does in reaction to something else. Not what He knows about us. In other words, there is no reference at all here to what you or I or anyone else may or may not do. It just simply says, for whom He foreknew. And all of these phrases are a demonstration of of what God does in order to fulfill His purpose on our behalf. And so I believe, because you are intelligent people, you already notice this. You already see this. It makes perfect sense to you. He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. The emphasis is on what God does. Not what God does on reference to what other people do, simply upon what God does. So you can clearly see that it is an action of God. It is an action of God alone. And therefore, for anyone to introduce anything that we humans may or may not do into the description that is here is actually just faulty exegesis. It's faulty Bible study. 
It's reading into the white spaces what is not there on the page. And so then, how do we come to a full understanding of what foreknow means so that we don't begin to impugn the very nature of God in how He saves us? Well, I believe the best place to start is to let God tell us what He means by foreknow. Let God tell us. And to do that, we need to look at a few other places whereby he communicates this in the New Testament. And there are two primary passages that I want to go to this morning, but I, and I want to use those to help us see how God defines foreknowledge before we get back to verse 29. The first is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And of course, we understand what's happening in the book of Acts. God has sent his son to earth and the Gospels are all about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. He raises from the dead. He now has ascended into glory, and the church has begun. It is now 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And, of course, we understand what is happening here. The apostles have been sent out. They have been sent out, as Matthew 28 says, into all the regions, so that they might proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon those who have believed that they might, so, so that there's all, they might proclaim the gospel. And there's all kinds of confusion going on amongst the people who are there in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, who have come from all the surrounding regions, who are speaking different languages, And they're not understanding what is happening because there's a miracle going on and they're hearing these people speak to them in their own tongue. The Spirit has come upon them and and this miraculous happening is taking place. And there's confusion going on. In fact, some of the people are even saying these are just people who are drunk. Verse 13 says they're mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. And so Peter stands up in the midst of all that's going on and he begins to explain to them what God is doing. And in his sermon, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament prophet Joel, and he speaks about what God had prophesied would take place through his spirit, his outpouring on these people. And then Peter links all of that to the present time. To the time that they are at that very moment when this is taking place. And he begins to tell them in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. There's the link. Old Testament prophet Joel. Here's what's taking place. This was all prophesied by Joel long ago. You all know that. Now here's the link, men of Israel. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. The one whom you know the one whom you've heard about, the one whom we're talking about, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. In other words, it's clear, it's obvious. This was clear even in the ministry of Jesus Christ that God was doing something through Jesus Christ. Jesus was telling them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, it's God doing these things. Jesus and the Father are one. This man, he says, verse 23, 
delivered up by the predetermined plan and, notice, foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. And you did it by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Now, I trust you notice the words predetermined plan. Predetermined plan. Those words are linked by that little connective grammar, the word and. That is a connective link. Predetermined plan and. So it's linked to the words, the foreknowledge of God. Predetermined plan is harizo. It's, it's the same word in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where it says he predestined. That's the same word, the same original word, horizo. It's where we get our word horizon. When, when, a, when a plane is flying, they're looking out to the horizon. That's the goal. That's the boundary. That's the, the place where they're headed. That's the idea here. Something in a boundary. The predetermined boundary of God. What was the predetermined plan? A predetermined plan is the plan that has been determined before. Pre, before, determination, that's the plan. The plan is before. It's a predetermined plan. You could even call it a predestination. And how did that predestination come about? By the pre-knowing of God or by the preordination of God, the prognosis of God. And so what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 2 is that God knew from eternity past that his son would be crucified, not in an intellectual sense, not because God looked down through the, through the history of his omniscience into time and saw that evil men were going to be doing it, and therefore he reacted to that so that his plan would happen. That's not what Peter is saying. No, he's saying that Christ was crucified because God had preordained it to happen. And He preordained it to happen before it ever took place. And what you are seeing and participating in, He's telling them, is the plan of God being worked out in time. So the predetermination, the pre-goal is happening because of the preordination of God for knowledge. In other words, it was a predetermined plan based upon that very reality, the preordination of God. It was a predetermined, it was a horizon that was a horizon that was a goal based upon the ordination of God. We'll go back to Romans chapter 11 now. Romans chapter 11. This is a second passage that I want us to see. This is very important for us to, to get this in our mind because there's been so much confusion throughout the ages. Romans chapter 11 Verses 1 and 2. Notice what Paul says. I say then, has God rejected his people? Has, has not, no, God, no, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? This is a rhetorical question. The, the obvious answer is, obviously not. God hasn't rejected his people. In fact, Paul even says it, may it never be. The strongest negative you could have. No, 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 no. That's what he's saying. God hasn't rejected his people, absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, listen, I'm living proof right before you that God hasn't rejected his people. I want you to understand that God has not rejected his people. In fact, from chapters 9 to chapter 11, that's Paul's 
one of Paul's main drives. God has not rejected His people. In verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He, what? Foreknew. Whom He foreknew. Cannot mean anything else than the only possible meaning that Paul gives it. It cannot mean here in Romans chapter 11 that God simply saw in the future of time that Israel would fall away. Because that's what some of Israel has done. It cannot mean that because that argument doesn't help Paul's overall argument that God has not rejected his people. His whole argument in that whole chapter is that God has not cast his people off. So how could looking down through the future time help that argument? How could that definition of foreknowledge, because it says he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, if that's the idea, how could that help his argument? The reality is it does not help his argument. And so what God is saying through Paul here in Romans 11 is not, or is that God is not casting off the people that he has foreordained as his people. In other words, it isn't that God has merely known intellectually because of his omniscience those who are going to be his people. No, certainly he knows things about his people and about how they will act and live. But Paul's not arguing for that. Paul is arguing that it is absolutely outside of the bounds of who God is. That he, having chosen certain people... And in this case, Paul's arguing for those from the Jewish community. Having chose certain ones from the Jewish community that he would throw, it's absolutely impossible and absurd to even think that God would throw them away, to reject them. That just cannot happen. That's not who God is. That is not his character. And that's the same argument that is being made back here in chapter 8, in verse 29. And that makes this entire passage an encouragement to every one of us who is a Christian. Because just as Jesus' death in Acts chapter 2, according to the sermon of Peter, and according to the history of the Old Testament prophecy, just as the death of Jesus was not an accident that God saw coming beforehand, and by that therefore reacted to it in time, and gee, isn't it a good thing that God saw it beforehand because now we have a chance? No. Just as it's not that God has chosen certain ones of the Jews to be His own, to never be cast away because He saw that somehow they would some way, in a miraculous sense, finally choose Him. No, He wasn't reacting to that. So too, when you think about your own life, all things that God has done in your life to bring about His foreordained plan of your salvation and your sanctification, all to the end for glorification is not according to your action, but rather according to His action. And it all begins with His foreknowing you. So I hope you can see that foreknew or foreknow or foreknowledge in its truest meaning is actually foreordination. Ordaining before. Foreordination. Now, as I'm standing up here thinking through this, I I said there were two passages, but let me just show you one more passage before we move on because I think getting this right is so crucial for us. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Because this is another passage by way in which we see this reality of foreordination taking place. 
First Peter chapter 1. We, in fact, studied this several years ago. Some of you may be fairly new here when we were studying through Peter. You may have not been here, but we studied through this passage. But notice what it says in verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, who's the he he's talking about? He's talking about Christ in verse 19. That is very clear, right? If you address, go all the way back up to verse 17, since that's where the sentence begins. If you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as an unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. For he, that is Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now Peter is looking into the way that we have been saved. This entire book he's writing to saints. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens who have been chosen, verse 1, according to the foreknowledge of God. There it is again. He's talking to believers. In fact, some of your translations might even use the word foreordained. In verse 20, it might say, for he was foreordained. And so think through it with me now in a... In an understanding way, Peter cannot possibly be telling us that God, who knows all things, that God the Father, who is omniscient about everything, simply looked down through time in the future and saw that his son would choose to become the unblemished lamb who would die. Because that's what he says in verse 19. You've been redeemed by precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown. God couldn't have just been looking down through time and saying, okay, I see what my son's going to do, therefore I, I will use that as the propitiatory sacrifice for sin. No, he says not what Christ did was foreknown, but that Christ was foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The fact of the matter is that the Godhead foreordained that the Son would be the unblemished Lamb that would be slain. The Godhead foreordained that reality. It was the predetermination and not the pre-seeing and therefore the reaction. It says that God the Father foreknew the Son in the sense that he specifically was set apart for a work and that he appeared for that very purpose, right? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, for the sake of you. Now, who are the you? Who are the us there for the sake of you? Who is that? Verse 21 says it's believers, you who through him are believers in God. We could say even believers on the basis of the same foreordination of God. We are believers based upon the foreordination of God. Now let me just say one more thing concerning this false idea that foreknowledge somehow means some kind of divine foreseeing of what will take place. 
if that is true, if that is true, then we have a real problem with our understanding of the true nature of man, don't we? If God's foreknowledge is simply foreseeing what man will do in reaction to the gospel and thereby God reacts to that and those who respond positively to the gospel, therefore God has chosen before, found before time to, to make sure they're saved and the rest he hasn't. If that is true, then we have a real problem with the nature of man because the Bible says that man is dead in his sin. In fact, it says he's born that way. We are still born spiritually. We're born dead. And we know that to mean spiritually dead, that's what all people are. We're spiritually dead, and we are on the road to physical death. Sin brought both of that in. And we know that no one seeks after God, Romans chapter 3 tells us. And that's an Old Testament passage. So you have the New Testament and the Old Testament telling us the same thing. No one seeks after God. And we know from the Old Testament that there is no one good. Paul even says that in Romans chapter 3. No one's good. We also know that from Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 that the heart of man is the most deceitful thing there is. There is nothing more deceitful than the heart of man. It is deceitful above all things. No one can know it. I cringe when somebody says, I'm just going to follow my heart. Don't do it. How do you know your heart's going the right direction? You can't know that. And we know, according to our study of Romans, that those who do not have the Spirit of God are of the flesh. And those who are of the flesh are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh and that they are hostile toward God. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 7? The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. And therefore it says they do not subject themselves to the law of God and it is impossible for them to even do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God in any kind of way. So we know the Bible teaches that. That's the character of man. That's the character of man from the time he is born until the time he dies unless God intervenes. He is a godless God-hater. In fact, Romans chapter 5 says that Christ died for the ungodly. So we know the Bible teaches this. So if foreknowledge means that God intellectually knows beforehand the people who will do the right response to him and the hear, in the hearing of the gospel down through the future ages from before time ever began that God looks down through time and he sees those who would respond to him, those who would seek after him, those who would finally choose him, those who would turn from their sin on their own because they're just somehow come to it. And then God determines their eternal security based upon that choice. Then we have a real problem because what could God possibly foreknow? What could he possibly foresee in man except the complete and total opposition to him? Because that's who man is. In other words, no one chooses God. And if no one chooses God from their very birth, then how could God ever see someone choosing him? If the hearts of all mankind are completely against God, as the Bible declares, which is what Paul has actually taught through Romans, then what could God possibly see in anyone except unbelief? And so therefore we cannot ever forget and we must never get our understanding wrong 
that it is the whom that God foreknew and not the what that God foreknew. It is the whom that God foreknew. Not the what that God foreknew. God foreknew you. God foreknew you before He ever created you. Before He ever created anything that would ever be created. Before the foundation of anything. God foreknew you. Not what you might do. For if He did not foreknow you, you would never have believed. You would never have believed. You say, well, that, that, that doesn't end it for me, Pastor. Well, I want to try to help you get it ended in your mind. Because if we still say that God looks down through time and sees the goodness of men, and therefore those are the ones whom He chose, then why would Jesus Christ ever say this? to people who say they believe Him in Matthew chapter 7. Why would Jesus ever say, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? Sounds like people who want God. Sounds like people who choose God. Sounds like people who even invoked Jesus' name to do it. Sounds like somebody God would have seen through the annals of time that would have been on His side and therefore He would have chosen them. And yet Jesus says, I will declare to you, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If foreknowledge is looking down through time, then Jesus and God the Father are on opposite sides of the fence. Then God wants to save some people whom Jesus is rejecting who even show some signs of religiosity, even in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I didn't know you. You know, you could really put there, I never foreknew you. You said you knew me, but I never foreknew you. Therefore, foreknowledge means that your salvation and mine has its origin in the mind of God and not us. Not us. To know someone, to foreknow them, to know them, biblically speaking, is to choose to love them. Choose to love them. God foreloved us. Paul says, because of that reality, therefore, He predestined us. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Now, some people try to say, that if that is what foreknowledge means, then doesn't that make predestination the same thing? My answer to that is no, because predestination is based upon foreordination. The goal is based upon the, the, the foreordaining to do it. Predestination, like foreknowledge, is made up of two words. It is pre, which is before, and destination, as I said earlier, which carries the idea of that destiny, that horizon. So you could say that predestination is to determine the person's destiny beforehand. And so we could say then that God foreknew or God preordained or God pre-loved you beforehand. Therefore, He has predetermined your destiny. He has predetermined your salvation. He has predetermined that you would be, verse, 20, uh, verse 29, 
conformed to the image of His Son. Conformed to the image of His Son. And that begins with your salvation. That begins in time with God saving you through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And in that, working all things for that ultimate good, which is according to His purpose, Paul says. So it's not the what that God saw in you that set that plan in motion for you. It's not what you might do in the future that set God's attention on you. No, you are the whom that He pre-loved. You are the whom. And because He pre-loved you, He predetermined your ultimate destiny in His family before He ever created anything. Before He ever created anything. And that predetermination God has made for you is to conform you to the image of His Son, which is why all things work together for that good. That ought to make you sit up in your seat. That ought to make you pop to attention. God is making you inside and out like Christ in every way. By the word, the word. By the way, the word "conformed" here to be predestined, to be conformed. That word "conformed" is another two-word word in the original language. Sumorphos is the word. Sumorphos. It means to be changed together. Sum is the the, the little preposition meaning together, and morphos is is where we get change, right? To be morphed into something different. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, to have your mind renewed, changed, to have it morphed. God is changing those whom He has foreloved. He is changing those whom He has foreordained. He is changing them into the likeness of Christ in His character and in our life actions. God is changing us to be like Christ and all things are being used to that end. All the good things and all the things that seem to be not so good. God is using them. God is using them. You say, well, how then did God get me to go from being a God-hating rejecter of Him in my heart and my life? so that I might believe in Him. And verse 30 says, And whom He predestined, these He also called. And we're going to wait for calling until next time. God has foreknown you, and God has set that plan out. He foreordained it, and the goal was set. Next week we're going to see how that plan takes action in time. Through his calling. I hope just in our time this morning you you've had your mind stretched that maybe it has been a sledgehammer to demolish some thinking that maybe you've had in the past in reference to foreknowledge, confusion about it. What is so prevalent out there that so many think? And how God defines it so differently. God has been gracious to us to help us understand these things. I trust they will be an encouragement to you even this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for just really helping us look under the cover, if you will, of this massive engine of salvation. The divine wisdom of God that you would save any of us is stunning. And what should surprise any of us is that we are saved at all because we don't deserve it. And yet because of your foreordination and your predestination, you have not only given what we needed for a payment 
so that it would be provided for us, but you have also granted to us the very faith that we might believe. You have accomplished it all. The goal has been set, it has been ordained, and you are carrying it out so that we might be conformed with Christ, conformed together so that his being joined to us would be even a glory to you through how we live and through how you change us. Unfathomable that you would do that for us. Even the angels look on us and wonder. So Lord, help us live according to these things with great joy. Help us be motivated in these things to share the gospel with others, knowing that it is you that opens eyes. Grant repentance and faith. For the sake of your great glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.